But we're journeying to the cross together this week as we approach the the day on which we especially remember Christ's sacrifice, his crucifixion in our place on the cross, and then ultimately his resurrection from the dead next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to John chapter 12 as we read a biblical account of what has become known in the life of the Christian church as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. John chapter 12. In life, our expectations often affect our attitude or our results. If we expect to maintain the status quo, then we will most likely maintain the status quo. If we expect to, to receive a certain degree, then we will be much more likely to achieve that degree. If we expect our marriage to fall apart, then it will be likely to fall apart. If you're a player on a sports team and you expect to win, then you will be much more likely to play as if you can win the game. If you have great expectations for your life, your career, your marriage, your spiritual walk, then you will be much more likely to see those expectations become a reality than you would if you had mere meager expectations about your life or your marriage or your career or your spiritual walk. Well, this morning from God's Word, we read about many who had meager, inadequate, insufficient expectations about who Jesus was. And as a result, the vast majority of them failed to ever truly believe in him or to understand him. Now to catch us up to speed with our text for today that will begin in John chapter 12, verse 12. In the previous passage, Jesus has been in Bethany at the home of Lazarus and Um, his sisters Mary and Martha enjoying dinner with them, a dinner that was given in his honor, most likely as a result of the great miracle that he had just performed there, raising Lazarus from the dead. And as a result of this miracle, this incredible display of God's power through Jesus, raising a man who had died and been laid in a tomb for four days. As a result of this miracle, many were believing in Jesus. Many were flocking to Jesus. Many were captivated by Jesus. And look back at John chapter 12, verses 9 and following. Jesus has been in Bethany at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. John tells us in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So the popularity of Jesus is a result of his ministry and his miracles, and especially this, this miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, has exploded. The crowds are, are telling more people about Jesus, and they find out that Jesus is back in Bethany, and so they go there to see him, but also to see Lazarus. 
But the religious leaders, the chief priests, those that were part of the the ruling council of that day were not too thrilled about this. They were not too excited about this. And so not only were they planning and plotting and resolving to take the life of Christ as we saw last week, but now we're told in this passage that they also planned to kill Lazarus as well. Just to get rid of all the the evidence of, of this miracle. But you know that just a few days later, these crowds, less than a week later, that were excited, thrilled, anticipating great things from Jesus, turned their backs on Jesus and were ready to kill Jesus. How could that happen? Less than a week later, Sunday, they're excited following Jesus around, going to where Jesus is to to see him. And then by Friday, they're convinced that he ought to die. And I think we see clues in our passage from today as to why and how that could take place. How the crowds could so quickly turn on Jesus. And it has to do with what they expected from Jesus, what they wanted in Jesus, what they were anticipating in Jesus. So look with me now at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So many are coming to Jerusalem that particular week. Because it was the celebration of the Jewish Passover. The festival that's mentioned in verse 12. Or the feast of unleavened bread. The celebration on, in which uh, the Israelites remembered what God had done for their ancestors. Remembered how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Because they had been obedient and listened to the Lord and spread the blood of lambs over their doorposts so the angel of the Lord would pass over them. Remember that story? Remember how Moses was the instrument of God and led the people of Israel out of captivity, out of bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh and the Lord used these various plagues to deliver his people from bondage. Now Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that lived just... Uh, about 30 years or so after uh, the time of Christ, that wrote about uh, 
wrote about one of the Passovers in the A.D. 60s. And and in his historical account, he wrote that 2.7 million pilgrims were in Jerusalem for that event. So this was a huge celebration, a huge religious festival and feast of remembering what God had done. And during that time, messianic expectations were high. People were looking for the Messiah, anticipating the one that would save them and deliver them from oppression at the hand of the Romans. And so here, when Jesus enters the scene, when he comes into Jerusalem on this donkey, they cry out, Hosanna, a phrase that means save us, or save us now, but had come to be a term of praise. And then they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, a psalm that the devout Jews would have been familiar with. So essentially, they are praising this one, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add another line. They say, blessed is the king of Israel. Clearly revealing their desires and their expectations for Jesus. They're looking for a national leader a political leader, a military leader who, who will save them from oppression so that they will once again be, be a great nation. And as long as Jesus would be that person for them, then they were going to flock to him. They were ready to crown him as king and, and to be national freedom fighters under his leadership go to war against those that were oppressing him. You see, the crowds readily receive Jesus if and when he fits their desires. The crowds readily receive Jesus if and when he fits their desires. They wanted a leader. They wanted a savior. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a great and powerful king. So they praise Jesus as he comes on the scene. Calling him the king of Israel, a title which he doesn't reject. But he would not be the king that would deliver them from the enemies that they were thinking of. Because Jesus is the true king of Israel, but, but he would deliver them from a different enemy. And not in the way that they anticipated or desired. And just like Caiaphas in chapter 11, verse 50, they spoke far more spiritual truth than they knew. Or Caiaphas said, as high priest, he said, it's, it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. Prophesying unknowingly that Jesus would indeed die for the nation. And likewise, Jesus is indeed the true king of Israel. And as long as he would meet the desires and the expectations and be the kind of leader and the kind of king that the crowds wanted, they would readily flock to him. But the truth is Jesus does not conform to the expectations of people. Jesus does not conform to the expectations of people. No doubt, they 
wanted Jesus to, to show up on the scene riding a war horse, making a statement about his might and his power and his ambitions and what he would do with them and for them. But we're told that he shows up on a young donkey. John and the other gospel writers mentioned that Jesus rides into town on a young donkey, an expression of humility and peace. And here we have a quote of Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah, verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So Jesus was indeed the true king of Israel. He was indeed the savior, indeed the Messiah who was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about who he was. The only problem is he was not who the people desired and expected him to be. The crowds wanted a great ruler, but Jesus came as a peacemaker. Jesus came as a peacemaker. He didn't simply come as a social activist with no real regard for clear, definable truth as some want us to believe today. Nor did he simply come as a chief information officer to depart more knowledge to us about the ways of God. No, Jesus came to transform lives by making peace between people and God. He came to transform lives by laying down his life as the ultimate sacrifice that would make us just and acceptable And worthy in the eyes of God. He came as the true Passover lamb. For Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 and following. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, punishing sin, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Remaining true to his character and at the same time through the sacrifice of Christ, providing a way for those that trust in Christ to be cleared of guilt, to be declared innocent, to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the right several books, to the letter written to the Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. And Hebrews is right after the short letters of Titus and Philemon and before James. But Hebrews chapter 9 provides a descriptive and clear picture of how the old covenant or the the old promise that God had with his people was fulfilled and altered through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant, or the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. Remember that description. Remember the Old Testament tabernacle and the division between the holy place and, and the most holy place. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says at the end of verse 5, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. In other words, remember those things. But that's not, that's not the point that he wants to make here. When everything had been arranged like this, verse 6, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priests enter the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. In other words, all these sacrifices and the bloodshed that that had to be done as part of uh, these offerings and rituals, and specifically here talking about once a year, the Day of Atonement, the one day that the high priest could go into the most holy place and offer a sacrifice for the people of God, for the sins that they had committed. All these things were only temporary. They were only pointing to something better, something greater, something that could last, something more significant. Verse 11, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So, back to John chapter 12. The crowds were expecting and desiring and wanting a great king and savior who would have great political and military ambitions that would serve their wants, would be in their best interest. But it wasn't just the crowds that failed to to recognize the fullness of God's plan. Even the disciples, we're told in verse 16, didn't understand all of this. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? The mystery and magnitude of God's plan is only understood in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 
disciples, the followers of Jesus, placed their faith in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They were trusting Jesus, but they did not understand the fullness of God's plan. They did not yet understand the greatness of God's plan, how all of this, all of God's story of redemption hinged on Jesus. The Old Testament law pointed to Jesus. The prophecies pointed to Jesus. The sacrificial system was only a temporary solution until it would be fulfilled in the final and the greatest and the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God on our behalf, who was and is the great high priest, the one through whom we can approach God boldly. And the desires and the expectations of, of the crowds and perhaps even Jesus' followers were puny when compared to the real thing. They wanted someone who would deliver them from bondage physically. Instead, they received someone who would deliver them eternally from the bondage of sin through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Jesus is not a a conformer to our expectations. He is a reformer and a mediator and a fulfiller and a great high priest, the Prince of Peace. He is Lord of all. He is Savior of the world. And so how do you respond when Jesus doesn't fit your expectations or desires? How do you and I respond when Jesus isn't exactly how we expect Him to be or would like Him to be? If and when you discover that Jesus might not care if you have a new house or a bigger house or more things, how do you and I respond? If and when we discover that Jesus actually demands a lot of us, us to give up a lot of things that that we like in order to more fully pursue Him, how do we Respond. If we discover that Jesus might not cure the cancer, how do we respond? How do we respond when Jesus doesn't fit or meet our expectations? Do we conform to who He is or do we say and, or think those pride-saturated words, I can never believe in a God who, fill in the blank. Folks, let's believe in Jesus for who He is, even when it doesn't match our expectations or desires. Let's worship Jesus for who He is. Let's not be like the crowds that were flocking to Jesus and then just a few days later they were saying, take him away, take him away, crucify him. John chapter 19, verse 15. 
I think we also see from this passage this morning that the message about Jesus is a message for the world. The message about Jesus is a message for the world. Look back at chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So these crowds who are overtaken, fascinated by a miracle that Jesus had done, could not help but to tell other people about this Jesus. And so the crowds then would would flock to him, and they were waiting on him in Jerusalem and going to meet him in Bethany. And if these men and women who were not true Christ followers were so compelled to tell others about something Jesus had done, how much more so should you and I, as followers of Christ, who've heard and understood and believed in Jesus as as the one who was crucified in our place on our behalf so that we could have eternal life with our Lord, how much more so should we be compelled to tell the world that message? If they could not help themselves, you and I shouldn't be able to help ourselves as well. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've never been to Walmart. Has anybody here actually never been to Walmart? (laughs) I didn't think so, but I was going to be amazed if you hadn't. But imagine that you've never been to Walmart. In fact, you've never been to any large-scale consumer store in your life. You've simply always gone to to small mom-and-pop type stores and and you've heard something about Walmart and, if, and you want to find out more, would you rather me tell you about Walmart or would you rather my three-year-old daughter tell you about Walmart? Now, I'm not asking which would be more entertaining, but if you're trying to learn about Walmart, would you rather someone who, who's been there quite a few times, I don't know, probably 200, 250 times in the last four or five years, uh, or someone that has just a very limited and partial understanding of the place. If she told you about Walmart, sure, she could tell you some things. She might begin by uh, calling it Walmart, uh, which is a step beyond what it was about six months ago, Marmark. Um, And she could tell you all about the uh, the shopping cart that's got the steering wheels that's almost never available and has a little race car look on the sides and she could tell you about the toy aisles. Uh, she could really tell you about the school bus uh, that's in the little arcade room near the front of the store. That's just so much fun to sit in. And she might even tell you about McDonald's where you could sit down and have a snack. And if you're really good, you might have some milk or lemonade with your food instead of water. <laughs> My point is, she could tell you some about it. But she really has no concept or no understanding of the amount of consumer products available in one place at an everyday low price compared to other places. But you do. 
Folks, if the message of Jesus is a message for the world, don't we want the world to hear about Jesus from the perspective of those who actually know Jesus? Who know Him as Savior, who know Him as Lord, who placed their faith in Him and trusted in Him for salvation? We're told in verse 18 that Many people went out to meet him because of this sign he had performed. And as a result, the Pharisees said to one another, look how the whole world has gone after him. Now they were exaggerating, but they had no idea that the message of Christ And the rule and the reign of Christ does extend and will extend across the whole world. Because one day, there will be a great multitude that no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they will be wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they will be crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The message of Christ is a message for the world. What reputation would Jesus have if it was only based on your words? What reputation would Jesus have in your sphere of influence, if it was only based on what came from your lips. Would people even know about Jesus? Would they understand that Jesus came on a rescuing mission to earth in order to reconcile us to our Creator through His bloodshed poured out on the cross in our place? The message of Jesus is a message for the world. Interestingly, in the sovereignty of God and the way that he put scripture together, in the very next verse, there were some non-Jews, some Greeks, who come to Jerusalem to worship God and they were looking for Jesus. So we step back and Reflect on this passage this morning. I think we see that although Jesus doesn't always fit our expectations. He is Lord. And the world needs to know it. Though Jesus doesn't always fit our expectations. He is Lord. And the world needs to know it. Have you surrendered to Jesus as Lord? Have you recognized it? He indeed is the King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who is called the Resurrection and the Life. You've given your life to Him. You trusted in Him. Do you worship Him for who He really is, even when it doesn't meet your expectations? And are you spreading that great news about Jesus? Are you telling the world that He indeed is the way and the truth and the life and the Lord of all? 
Though Jesus doesn't always fit our expectations, he is still Lord. And the world needs to know. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, it penetrates to our hearts, to our souls. Lord, we pray that you would convict us by your word, that you would challenge us by your word daily, often, Lord. Lord, that we would conform our understanding of who you are to what your, to what your word says about who you are. Lord, we do pray that you would lead us now, that you'd be glorified in us, that the name of Christ would be exalted, or that you would lead us, that you would comfort us and that you challenge us. Lord, that you'd point us to the cross this week as we remember the great sacrifice that, that you gave in our place in order to take the wrath that we deserve. We thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather with your people. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.